Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. From the Milton Metz studio and I use radio TV building at Indiana University, welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg along with WFIU, WTIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. And today we're going to be talking about uh, the minimum wage and whether Indiana might be in line to increase the minimum wage this year. Workers in 18 states and 19 cities are getting pay bump, pay, paycheck bumps thanks to minimum wage increases that took effect on New Year's. And uh, 10 states are raising wages due to ballot measures or legislation, while eight states will see smaller increases from automatic inflation adjustments. Our state's minimum wage has stayed at $7.25 since the last federal increase in 2009. Indiana Senate Democrats are once again putting a minimum wage increase on their 2018 legislative agenda, and the Republicans have some ideas for how they might be able to raise the minimum wage as well. And that's what we're going to talk about today with two guests we have in the studio. Timothy Slaper is the Director of Economic Analysis at the Indiana Business Research Center, and Lisa Amsler is the Kelly Rundin, Keller Rundin Professor of, of Public Service at the IU School of Public and Environmental Affairs. You can join us on the air by calling 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also email, email us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org, or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So thanks for being here, Tim and Lisa. Thanks for being here with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting us. All right. Well, it's, a, it's always a good topic. Um, minimum wage. There, there are – it seems – I mean, to a lot of people, it seems like, well, yeah, minimum wage is a great thing. It's, you know, you raise the minimum wage, people are going to have more money in their pocket. But there's always that other side that says, well, if you do that, there are going to be these other effects. So could – Tim, I'm going to turn to you first. Could you sort of frame the debate about minimum wage increases? Well, if uh, I, I approach this question as an economist, mm -hmm. and you know, we have this theory, uh, if you raise the price of something, you purchase less of it. Mm -hmm. And that is the general overarching idea for those that give pushback to any increases in minimum wage is that you're going to displace some workers because that's going to make hiring more, more costly for employers. And, mm -hmm. and you'll see with uh, some of the regulations attached to minimum wage, uh, it doesn't apply to certain companies of certain size, all the rest of it, because they realize that if you're a mom-and-pop retailer, uh, you may not be able to absorb uh, you know, increases in minimum wage. So uh, there are some caveats to that. Mm -hmm. So that's the general idea. And then you have to you know, look at the uh, other dynamics associated with a, a regional or state economy, uh, their cost of living. Uh, as well as how uh, buoyant demand is for certain types of low-skilled labor, because usually the minimum wage is, a, is associated with lower-skilled uh, labor. And what one finds is that uh, there are – studies have been done on the effects of changes in minimum wage law and their effect on hiring. and. Uh, the results are not unambiguous. Uh, they might show in some cases where there's very little effect. Some cases that show that there's a negative effect in terms of hiring. Uh, but then you have to ask the question, are these increases in the minimum wage modest? Are we going from 725 to 775? Or are we going from 725 to uh, $12, $13 an hour? And that would be significant. And if you think about the fact that if you go to a Starbucks and the cup of coffee costs 50 cents more than it did yesterday, you might continue just to con go there. But if it goes up a buck, you might get, yeah, I'm going to go to Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> right. So it, you know, the, the threshold of how 
uh, modest the increases are is also affects uh, the the labor dynamics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I if I could kick in there, I have sure. this favorite uh, blogger I follow, Daniel Mitchell, a UCLA emeritus business professor. And every day he's posting stuff that people might really enjoy. The last thing I saw he posted about the minimum wage is that the, an overall review of the studies showed that there's generally not an effect in terms of job loss. Um, if there's any effect, it's very small and limited regionally. So um, I, I guess I would counterpoint that uh, CEO salaries are through the roof. Wage inequality is worse than it was right before the Great Depression. Uh, And you wonder, if we don't increase the minimum wage, how are people going to afford to buy the stuff that these companies, in theory, are increasing the prices on? But I mean, assuming they don't even increase the price, right? Mm -hmm. Retail sales are going down. That's not just because people are buying online, it's because People are rebelling, and they're just not buying stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the arguments, too, right, is like raising people who are at the lower. And those are the people who are more likely to buy stuff versus people who have more, save more. Exactly. Well, I'm, I'm really interested in, in the point that Tim made about the how much you raise the minimum wage. I mean, we've heard it's, what is it, 725 in Indiana now in the federal minimum wage. Yet there are cities, there are places that are raising the minimum wage or discussion to raise it in certain areas to $15. You know, I think the the one bill that uh, maybe is in the state legislature would raise it here to $10.10. I mean, can you talk about, both of you talk about that that issue of, you know, how much, where's that tipping point? You know, where might there be a tipping point? Can you raise it to $15 and have no effect? Can you, or can you just raise it to $10 and have no effect? Lisa? Uh, I am not an economist. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a lawyer. <laughs> and in SPIA, we have interesting conversations between economists and lawyers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I don't know what the curve mm-hmm. is for Indiana. Tim and I were having a conversation right before we started because I'm always wondering where we are relative to everyone else. And he was um, pointing out that we are the most manufacturing heavy state in the union, and that that actually means that our uh, average wages are a little bit lower. So I'd like to punt on that one to him. Oh, sure. Uh, on that particular topic, as I was uh, talking to Lisa on this, is the fact that if you look at the uh, average per capita income in or average household income in the state. And you compare that to the average manufacturing uh, income, you'll see that they're probably pretty much spot on. So you can add manufacturing jobs until the cows come home, and you're not going to move, you know, move the needle in terms of the state average income profile, you know, the per capita personal income, whatever measure you want to, because you keep on adding people that have the same, you know, average IQ into a room, it's not going to change the IQ, average IQ in the room, right? So what uh, is hurting us in terms of our overall uh, income profile is the lack of uh, many of the brain power occupations. That is, we lost a lot over decades. We lost a lot of headquarters, a lot of the design, the the finance work, the, the things that are a part and parcel of making stuff as well as designing stuff and selling stuff. And we lost the latter, and we kept the former. And most of those jobs went to places like Chicago or, you know, the, the coast, that's, that sort of thing. So that is one of the reasons why we, we have that, that income, uh, that our, our income lags with respect to most other locations. But I don't think that is really the, the core topic that you wanted to, to talk about today, although I am happy to talk about other issues, whether it's inequality sure. or whatever else. I wanted, uh, if maybe I could do it now or, yeah, or sure. later, but there's been a very recent study on the effects of increases in minimum wage laws in the city of Seattle. And if you look at that work, which is, I think, uh, uh, an extremely comprehensive 
uh, effort on the part of the researchers from the University of Washington, you find that the increases, they haven't even hit their $15 uh, an hour mark yet, but the increases up to 13 have had a deleterious effect on hiring uh, as well in the as well as overall income levels for those that are at that minimum wage threshold. In other words, you can get a higher per hour, but if they cut back your hours, mm -hmm. you may actually wind up with a lower overall paycheck. And what they uh, they did was they looked at every industry and they used a data set that unfortunately we don't have in our state. That is, uh, if you're filing unemployment insurance, uh, the ES-202, as an employer, you write down how many people and how much the wage is total. In the state of Washington, you'd say how many hours that person worked. So you can get a wage for each individual worker and trace that wage to a particular location. And that is a very powerful uh, data set in trying to def determine the effects of uh, that minimum wage increase on, on hiring and their t overall take-home pay. So uh, they found that, uh, interestingly enough, with the food and beverage, you know, restaurants is usually the go-to case of, oh, this is what, this is the industry that is going to suffer the largest impact in, in, in terms of minimum wage uh, increases. What they found was that was not the case for the restaurant industry in Seattle. The restaurant industry in Seattle is dominated by very high-end restaurants. People make pretty good paychecks who work and live in Seattle, and after a long day at work, they don't want to go to Burger King. They want to go spend 50 you know, bucks on a dinner. And as a result, most of the workers in those restaurants are already making above $15 an hour. It's not going to affect them. It will affect the people that are working at the, the fast food joints, but that's a disproportionately small share of the overall restaurant market in, in Seattle. So then they were looked at other things, whether it was construction or business services, and they found that there was a negative effect on uh, hiring and the, um, uh, the number of hours that the workers worked in the other industries. And as a follow-on, one of our fellow uh, Hoosiers, not at IU, at, at Ball State, uh, contributed to a paper that looked at um, health code violations. Mm -hmm. And there was an increase in health code violations in Seattle as a result of this change in the minimum wage. And why would that be? Because that would be the last thing that you would have somebody spend their time doing. They weren't the red code ones that would be basically shutting down mm -hmm. the restaurant. They would be the blue code ones. But the point being is that there's been an increase in citations associated at the same time as this increase in minimum wage. So if your uh, $19 an hour dishwasher didn't get around to mop in the floor, eh, you know, that happens. <laughs> I think geography is an important part of this. When we're talking about Seattle, where it starts at 13 and then goes up to 15, I know when that happened, a lot of folks here were like, well, look at Seattle and what they're doing. Um, but I guess I would just, is there an argument to be made that maybe a federal minimum wage isn't what we need? Maybe this should be handled by states who understand the economies of that particular region because they are so diverse. Well, the states already can, and they do. Um, and I, I, thinking of Seattle, I, it's interesting to see what's happening in San Francisco. I mean, when you have a tech-heavy center with people earning higher salaries, it drives up housing costs. So the people that you need to hire at the lower end of the, the wage spectrum for those service jobs can't necessarily find housing that they can afford near the place that needs them to work. And this came up in the restaurant industry uh, recently in San Francisco in, in combination with discussions about raising the minimum wage. Uh, it, the local cost of living is, is a really relevant factor to what's an appropriate place to target 
the minimum wage. But going back to this question of the state and local, one of the things I love about the Fair Labor Standards Act is it's, it's a statute passed using Congress's powers to regulate interstate commerce. And that means it's supposed to address economic flows, uh, flows of goods and services across state lines and the rule structure under which we run our economy and how that affects those flows. And in the statute, Congress in the, in the Great Depression uh, said that this is our statute, but if a state or local government passes a law that provides for a higher minimum wage, that trumps federal law. And that's why you have these spots, these islands, where the cost of living is higher, the workforce um, issue is more competitive, and that's driving a political consensus on raising a minimum wage in particular places. And that's also consistent with this notion that the effect is localized. So, so what you're looking at in the Seattle study is happening in Seattle, but um, we have to look at the entire economic framework of Seattle to, to get some of these effects, and, and you're not talking about housing, for example. Let me give our phone numbers, 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org, or you can uh, follow us on Twitter um, at Noon Edition. The uh, couple things that are happening in the, the legislature, I, I have um, – I got – news release yesterday about one bill that's being uh, filed. I believe it's in the Senate. Yeah, Senate Bill 121 would increase the minimum wage in Indiana from $7 to $7.25 an hour to $10 an hour on June 30th, 2019. Following two more years of incremental increases, the state minimum wage would be $15 an hour by June 30th, 2021. And there would be a subsequent increase each following year in accordance with inflation. I guess uh, the question I want to ask is about these sort of incremental increases. Is, is that a way to tackle this minimum wage issue so that we don't go, you know, 10 years between the minimum wage increasing? Is there a way to index this to inflation in some way? Tim? Well, I is that a good idea or a bad idea? Well, you you brought up two different things. Right. One is uh, mandating increases, mm -hmm. and then the other one was attacking on the cost of of living increases. Mm -hmm. And I would advocate that yes, tacking that on as a means to increase the minimum wage would be a an easy way to go about having that incremental adjustment over time because it, it takes uh, a, a lot of blood in the streets with you know these different uh, uh, parties colliding and clashing and all the rest of it to pass this kind of legislation why not have some automatic incremental increase because if there comes a time when inflation goes from two percent to twelve percent uh, you know that 725 if you're still there uh, that that's going to really, truly hurt uh, those minimum wage, low-skilled workers. Mm -hmm. Don't some states already do that? Yeah, yeah. they do. They, they already do. have it. Uh, it's, as, as Lisa brought up, I mean, states have the ability to you know, chain, you know, have higher uh, yeah. rates. They can have different ways to escalate that. We see that there are many states that, you know, have mandated through legislation or uh, – uh, ballot referenda that uh, would increase the minimum wage. So there's all sorts of different mechanisms to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw something about 18 states have already done it. Have it tied to inflation, mm -hmm. well, but Indiana is not one inflation, of but have mandated increases in the last couple. Sure. Of years. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Your uh, comment about blood in the streets. I, I've always thought this. Uh, also, in terms of when public officials want to raise salaries for particular jobs in public service, like if the county commissioners come forward and say, oh, we need to raise our salary by X amount, I've always wondered why those aren't indexed in some ways so that people don't have to vote themselves a pay raise. 
Well, well you have cost. Mm-hmm. You do have cost of living increases built into collective bargaining agreements. Yes. But Indiana is now a right to work state. Right. Uh, and unionization nationwide in the private sector is 6% or lower. It's somewhat higher in the public sector. I think it's on average nationally around 24%. Mm-hmm. But think about the structural inequality built into our laws between employers and employees. Employees don't have that much bargaining power when they're operating individually unless they're a famous basketball player, right? Right. Uh, And the way that they have power is when they act collectively, which is why there has been a legislative push in various states to weaken their power to act collectively. I mean, it's a political issue. Mm -hmm. I think that's really interesting because a lot of these minimum wage jobs don't really have that big overarching group that's necessarily lobbying on their behalf, right? Like um, fast food workers. I mean, they don't really have an agency, right? Like like coal uh, workers well, do or something. Uh, unionization is low in that arena. You have unions like SEIU organizing the home health care aides in California. Uh, California's legal framework for collective bargaining uh, is more balanced than some other states. Uh, and they've had more success in, in an arena you wouldn't think would lend itself to collective bargaining. There's another bill that's going through uh, that's actually authored by an Indiana uh, Senate Republican, John Ruckel's House, that would give tax credits to employers that increase pay for minimum wage workers who complete a career enhancement program. Um, again, Tim, from a policy standpoint, how would tax credits work in a, in a, um, as an incentive for trying to raise the minimum wage? Well, the, what you're trying to do is you're trying to induce employers mm-hmm. to increase the productivity of their workers. And that would be considered a win-win all the way around, right? Because higher productivity means higher profits. The, the various stipulations of the bill, and I, I don't know them, you know, I haven't memorized them, yeah. but I mean, there are stipulations in terms of how long the person need, has to work at that location in order for those tax credits to one year right mm-hmm. just one year mm-hmm. uh, I don't remember seeing anything about if what if the employee quits yeah uh, I don't know about that if it, I were an employer I would want to have that kind of provision in there because it's like wait a minute I just spent all this money to train you mm-hmm. I'm not going to get my tax credit and you've just quit all right so where's the where's the allegiance there you well where's the kind of solidarity, if you will. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the idea that you're, you're, you're trying to induce employers to do that, I think, is not, not a bad thing, mm-hmm. uh, especially since the Great Recession. You know, c- companies, have, you know, they cut back on their worker training, that, those sort of non-essential elements to their uh, payroll or, or expense, expenses. And there's been a lot of finger-pointing about whose job it is to you know, train a worker to be productive. You know, is it the, the the state and government's role to make sure that happens? Is it the individual's worker's role to make sure that she or he is you know has the the, the highest grade skills and and abilities? Is it the employer that's supposed to train them through apprenticeship opportunities? You know, there's like, wait a minute, you guys are supposed to do it. no, 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 no. I'm not going to do that. Why should I do that? I mean, you know the and there's a lot of friction in that market. So that creates something of uh, a barrier for employers to provide that training. What they're trying to do is reduce those barriers so employers would do that. The, the downside, near as I can determine, is that this is probably something for a medium to larger employer to benefit from. Probably not going to really help out that mom and pop retailer. Uh, you know, it's, you know, bait and tackle shop, mm-hmm. you know, owner outside of Lake Monroe, that type of thing. Right. Lisa? Yeah, if, if I could respond, there was um, an uh, editorial recently, or a letter to the editor. There is um, something that's perplexing economists that although productivity has increased recently, 
it hasn't been accompanied by an increase in wages. Usually, they were lockstep uh, historically. And so there's discussion about whether the link between productivity increases and worker compensation increases is now broken. Uh, I'm not familiar with uh, the bill that mm -hmm. you mentioned. I thought what you said was the link to tax credits was if people raised wages above the minimum wage, yes. not particularly with training. Now, apprenticeship programs have wide support because what employers have been complaining about is that the skills of the workforce don't match their needs. So apprenticeship programs, um, SPIA does uh, capstone reports for various uh, public sector clients. For example, we've got at IU the Center for Rural Engagement looking at southwest central Indiana counties around Bloomington. And one of the recommendations in the last report um, that also recommended the creation of the center was the need for increased apprenticeship programs uh, and training that fits the needs of the workforce. Bloomington is interesting in that it is developing itself as a center for uh, tech startups. And that's a very promising development, I think. Let me tell you uh, what this bill says, according to the Associated Press report. Um, it says that the, the bill would provide a, a credit against tax liability for employers of minimum wage workers that give raises to their workers after those workers complete a training program that would improve so their education. Both. Yeah, so, so it's it, it does both. Now, the training program that would improve their education, are we talking their about? Their education level or skills. So that, that means we're talking about like Ivy Tech, for example, that has some great programs, uh, certificate I, programs. I would, I would could think be. so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. could be. Or other vocational opportunities. Mm -hmm. I, I think what the, uh, and, and this relates to the whole minimum wage concern is that typically the minimum wage constituency, if you will, tends to be lower skilled labor, uh, more generic, and as a result, they're not that high paid basketball player or for that matter, high pay, highly paid programmer because that highly paid programmer also uh, can probably negotiate pretty well with the HR people across the table because they, they know that she or he is pretty hot stuff. But if it's pretty generic and there's low skill, then, you know, one person is equal to the other in terms of my production. But if I get somebody with higher levels of skill that uh, not only knows how to turn a wrench, but also knows how to code a machine that is able to turn several different wrenches automatically, then I'm going to pay that individual more money because that individual is more productive on my, you know, production line. We're going to have to take a short break, so let me uh, give our phone numbers again. So if you have a question, you can give us a call during the break, 812-855-0811, or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can email us a question at news at indianapublicmedia.org, or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We'll be right back. the Milton Metz studio at IU's radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIUNews. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live. And you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't find anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org.
Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire, the News Bureau Chief of WFIU and WTIU. We're talking about uh, some labor issues today, mainly raising the minimum wage and what impact that might have on the state of Indiana and its workers. We have two guests in the studio. Lisa Amsler is the Keller Rundon Professor of Public Service, the IU School of Public and Environmental Affairs. And Timothy Slaper is the Director of Economic Analysis with the Indiana Business Research Center. If you want to join us, give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also email us your questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can follow us and contact us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Sarah? So we have some numbers uh, from 2016, I guess, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics that shows – 69,000 workers in Indiana make at or below the minimum wage. So, um, Tim, I was just hoping we could talk a little bit about who, who those folks are, if we have any idea, and what an increase in the minimum wage might mean for them. Um, I mean, if they're college kids or if it's somebody who this is their primary income, they're supporting a family. or Do you know any, anything about that? Those that are not are earning below the minimum wage. So they could be agricultural workers, for example. Uh, that might be migrating through the the state as you know the as the seasons change, and they're picked up occasionally through uh, various other data collection methods. It may be that they are working for that small mom and pop you know bait and tackle shop you know on Lake Monroe, where they because they're so small, uh, they may be seasonal workers that are working at. Um, I always call it Wally World, but the the Santa Claus place. What is what is it called? Oh, oh uh, Holiday World. Holiday World. Holiday World. <laughs> Holiday World. <laughs> But because seasonal employees like that are not necessarily covered by minimum wage either, so there are uh, a whole host of possibilities there. Now you had asked about uh, a demographic profile, and I, I and this is something I think Lisa said she wanted to discuss as well is because. Uh, you might find minimum wage workers who are trying to support their household, uh, but you also find that that is those are not the trying to take the first step on the the, uh, the first rung on the ladder towards a career and all the rest of it and entering life like you would see for high school students that are working at a at a fast food place or uh, when I was in high school you know working at a department store over Christmas you know that sort of thing. So those are, you know, that's a different profile. And you would probably find that those that tend to stay in those lower wage jobs are those that just barely squeaked by from high school or maybe even dropped out of high school and they're just trying to get by. And uh, they could have, in terms of demographic profile, uh, you'd probably find that it would bu- it'd be you know biased towards minorities in in terms of the uh, the minimum wage as well. Actually, it's it's more biased toward women. Mm-hmm. Um, and the it, it, I, w- I did a uh, Fulbright in Sweden long ago, and I was fascinated by the way the unions uh, across the country got together and and negotiated in a particular cycle for increasing the minimum rate across all the collective bargaining agreements. And what they were surprised to find is that the, av- the difference between men's and women's wages narrowed you know, noticeably. Um, so the, uh, the, folks, the folks I work at worry about with less bargaining power, for example, tipped employees, uh, there are a variety of ways in which employees can end up not earning the minimum wage. Uh, tipped workers can be paid less as a guaranteed hourly wage, provided that their tips at least make up the difference. But they're also allowed to pool tips. And then there's this question of uh, you know, places redistributing the tips to the dishwashers who are not tipped employees, uh, generally. Uh, but a more concern are patterns that are emerging uh, in this administration uh, among, in the construction industry, there are reports that contractors are hiring undocumented workers 
um, promising them, say, $15 a day pay, and then not paying them. And if the workers stand up saying, well, we'll report you and you'll get deported, um, which is a fairly credible threat. So we've got a, a workforce um, of millions of employees, potential employees, who uh, are not documented workers, and they are um, they have even less bargaining power uh, than the documented workers. And this notion of how we enforce the rules we do have is actually uh, a deep concern. David Wheel has written a book called The Fishered Workplace, and he was in the Obama administration the head of the wage and hour division of the federal U.S. Department of Labor. And uh, employees have to report wage theft for them to be able to enforce the law. And there are two reasons why employees won't. Um, one of which is that they're at risk of immediate dismissal, even though the statute prohibits retaliation from reports of wage and hour violations, even either at the state or the federal level. But uh, also because employers across the country have adopted, even for uh, documented employees, uh, arbitration clauses such that and it, it preempts the capacity of an employee to go to court or to an agency to enforce the law. They've got to go to an arbitrator. They may have to pay for the arbitrator. They may have to pay for the employer's legal fees if they lose. And, and it's um, something that deters employees from going to something like the Wage and Hour Department. I had a talk with David Wheel, and he said, we have no way of documenting how many claims are being suppressed and how much violation is going on. Two points I want to make to, to play off of, of what Lisa just said. One is I do have some statistics about this. So um, despite representing 47% of U.S. workers, women make up 63% of the minimum wage workers. So women are disproportionately more likely to make minimum wage. And African-Americans represent 12% of the U.S. workforce and make up 17.7% of minimum age minimum wage workers. 16% uh, of the labor force is Hispanic, and they represent 21.5% of workers making minimum wage. So these um, gender and the ethnic inequalities are more likely to be pronounced in minimum wage. You talk about, talked about wage theft, and I know um, we did a story within the last 12 months, I can't remember <coughs> when it was exactly, about uh, wage theft in college communities, that college communities are are prone to these kind of things, and there was a there was a study done recently, or an investigation done recently that involved Bloomington as well as I think Ann Arbor and several other college communities. Lisa, in your experience, are college communities more um, likely to have wage theft issues with their workers in other communities? Have you have I, you seen anything like that? I have not seen okay. it, but okay. they might not tell me. You have lot. I mean, my students. I'm I'm really amazed. We have wonderful students. Um, we're very blessed at IU, but a lot a lot of them. <laughs> I would say most of them are working their way through school. I mean, people who are holding down full time jobs while they're also taking a full course load. And it's amazing to me that they do as well as they do. Mm -hmm. um, so there are all these different ways that people can try to generate income, right? Uh, and it, it raises this question of the uh, independent contractor uh, employee division, you know, or the internship employee division. Uh, I. We have a number of employees, a number of students, most students in various programs, particularly graduate students in professional schools, have to do internships in order to graduate. And so a lot of those are, at least for our public and nonprofit uh, students, are, are unpaid internships, I would say the vast majority of them. Uh, the the uh, abuse of the internship uh, exception to minimum wage law has been uh, a subject of 
some coverage in the press. And in theory, um, it, it, the internship uh, ought generally to be paid. So there's one way we can have uh, what appears to be perfectly legitimate, but if it were actually investigated by the Department of Labor, might not qualify as an unpaid internship. That's one way. Another way is this independent contractor exception. Um, there, it has been documented, there have been studies that employers across the country are labeling people as independent contractors who in fact would not qualify. Under uh, any of these exceptions, the independent contractor, the internship exception, the Department of Labor would use a totality of the circumstances test where it would look at the complete relationship. The definition of what's an employee uh, is very simple. It's someone who's suffered or permitted to work. So if you're letting somebody work unpaid, that does not necessarily protect you against a claim of wage theft. And there was this lovely little chart um, in, the, on the, in the Department of Labor website. Just the fact that somebody has you fill out a 1099 form doesn't mean you're not an employee. Just the fact that you're called an independent contractor or you sign a contract saying you're an independent contractor doesn't mean you're not an employee. Um, all, having an employee identification number or an employer identification number because you set yourself up doesn't guarantee it. All the facts and circumstances include things like how much control does the employer have over how you do your work, when you do your work, where you do your work, all these standards, which is why um, Uber, for example, is coming under attack as an employer, not, a, not an, an entity in independent contracts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason this, I mean, this is related to um, minimum wage issues is because as an independent contractor, you don't, you're not, don't have to pay minimum wage. Right. right. Okay. Yeah. We got a question online. I'm going to paraphrase it a, a bit here. Um, but saying th they'd like to hear more about the real life effects of trying to live on the minimum wage because when it comes down to individuals and not data sets, this is an ethical and human rights issue. They say the minimum wage has to be tied in some way to the value produced for the employer. When CEOs are making hundreds of times what an employee makes, that shows the employee is creating great value for the company and should be rewarded in kind no matter what the skill level is. It goes on to say it's ultimately a moral issue no matter what the level of skill or work. An adult who works full-time should be paid enough to take care of him or herself and family. Um, we could figure out what that figure is for any given reason, region rather and compute a living wage for that area. That's how, from Rick Nagy. Yeah, how about, Tim, how about an economist's view of that? Calculate I mean, I, I know it's kind of a, yeah. it's a, it's sort of a policy issue and he's talking about the economists rights. are ethical, right? I mean, you, uh, you, no, we're not. No, right? no, no. <laughs> we're, we're just guns for hire. <laughs> no. no, but I mean, there there are, you know, from, you know, from an econ, I guess from your point of view, from an economist's point of view, this person writes about you know the the need for people to make enough money to get by and this growing i think it's growing you can tell me if it's not because you know all the numbers growing gap between the very wealthy and the not so wealthy is that gap growing well that that gap is is growing and it's uh uh i, I don't think it's as great a mystery as some might think but there were a lot of questions in your yeah uh and I think we started off with the living wage idea. Right. Mm -hmm. And the uh, it sort of depends on what your initial uh, starting point is in terms of how you gauge a minimum wage job. Are you looking at it as a low-skilled, easy-access sort of job, that first rung on a ladder, that is not intended to be able to support a family. And in, in other words, it's more or less intended to be a supplemental source of income for an individual, not necessarily to support uh, a household. And if you view it that way, then that kind of changes your perspective on the uh, bar to which you would set that threshold. It's not a living wage. It has to be considerably higher to be a living wage. 
And I got into a, an interesting discussion with a colleague uh, a little while ago. We were talking about the minimum wage laws in uh, Silicon Valley and, and uh, different counties have different laws. And there was like some mall where one side of the mall was in one county and one side was in the other. And there was like this shop, you know, that had branches in both sides. And, you know, there's the, engendered some bitterness, I guess, in terms of who got to work on what side. So, uh, but... <clears throat> One of the things they, they found is that if you increased the, the threshold, the minimum wage, their turnover was considerably reduced. So that was actually made employers happy. It's because, well, I'm not having to you know, spend all this time interviewing new candidates, and maybe they're going to work out, maybe they won't. Uh, the good ones stuck around. And you know, that, that would be good for employers. But on the other hand, do you necessarily want somebody who is – 25 or 30 in that same job that they had when they were 18. Have you made it too comfortable for them to not, you know, try to climb up to the next rung of the ladder? Maybe take some additional courses, maybe improve, you know, your skill set and move from 15 bucks an hour to 20 bucks an hour and, you know, on up in terms of some sort of career. Because I think, uh, I, you know, this is just anecdotal, but I know, you know, parents of kids that have graduated and suddenly they're starting to make money and there's more money than they ever made before, even though it was like just, you know, pennies more than minimum wage. And they were happy about that, you know? And, and then he goes, well, are they going to be stuck there? Just like they're really happy working at CVS at minimum wage and, you know, more money they've ever made before and they're going to be there for the next 10 years. So I think it depends on your kind of your framework. But I, I couldn't disagree that that wage is not sufficient to support a household. Yeah. And that, I think, is of great concern. So knowing is there a career path or is there some sort of employment path that won't necessarily mean that you have to have all these credentials, but you can indeed at least support yourself and support perhaps other members of your family. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, don't, I don't know what the solution to that is. Mm -hmm. I, I just I want to make this, a, this discussion just a little more concrete. So, so the 725 an hour um, at a 40-hour work week is $290 a week. Uh, for the year, it's $15,080. Um, rents in Bloomington are probably 700 on average for an apartment, maybe? Is that low, do you that, think? It's probably, that's probably low. Okay. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe average, but... Yeah. yeah. Depends how many roommates you have. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, and, and how sketchy the apartment is. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So we're already at approximately half of what we're bringing in on minimum wage. Um, interestingly, the the Obama administration era uh, uh, amendment to the regulations defining the exempt classifications of employment, uh, the executive, professional workers, administrative workers, um, that those uh, th those workers are exempt from overtime. I mean, they're not minimum wage overtime workers. They're paid on a salary. And the salary was last pegged before this amendment at somewhere in the area of $23,000, um, which was considered way low. And we've got people classified as administrative employees who are in secretarial positions um, or uh, clerical positions. Um, they may not actually be supervising other people. There are abuses of these exemptions. Um, but the interesting thing is that the amended regulation increases the salary to qualify for the exemption to $47,476 a year. So I think that gives us a little bit of a range to think about how low the current minimum wage is. Mm -hmm. A family cannot live on that wage. And that, that change in the exemption never took place either. So it's, being it's been challenged. It's yeah. been challenged. So it's not, not taking effect. We did a show a couple of weeks ago about the new tax plan. 
do you do either of you anticipate any about sort of two minutes to go? Okay, Mine. Tim can answer this quickly. Um, <laughs> if you anticipate any trickle down effect, corp, you know, the corporate tax rate gets cut, is that in turn maybe going to lead to more money in the average worker, minimum wage worker? The effect is probably going to be marginal. <sighs> Thank you. Uh, and there would be positive benefits associated with the la- the uh, incentive for the. Um, Companies buying another, you know, like buying Tim Hortons, so you can establish uh, your headquarters in another country with lower uh, taxes. That will uh, that will help corporations. That will improve uh, the employment prospects. It would also, uh, as as we've seen, I guess whether it was a show uh, or whether it was you know something genuine in terms of giving back some of the anticipated tax benefits to employees. It would provide more headroom for them to be able to uh, improve workers' wages. But one might also say, well, who is it that's making these decisions? Well, it's the ones that are already very well compensated in the boardroom, and it may not have that kind of trickle-down effect that um, we had hoped for. Mm-hmm. Lisa, do you want to comment on that in the last minute that we have? Uh, last 30 seconds. It, 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 it's, not, it's not going to help the minimum wage worker overall. Mm -hmm. And it's going to make problems down the road when we have budget deficits and there are proposals to cut the budget and we have even fewer resources to enforce the laws we have. I would summarize this show by saying this is a complex issue and that we we touched on a lot of the different parts, a lot of the different points with the issue. It will be in our Indiana General Assembly this year, and it probably will be discussed on the federal level as well. And we'll just have to wait and see what happens. But I really want to thank both of you for being here, Lisa Amsler and uh, Tim Slaper. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, For Angela Batista, our producer, and also engineer Mike Pashkash and Sarah Whitmire, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu and Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.